So good morning, and I trust uh, that you had a Merry Christmas, and uh, if, if not, I hope that our time together in God's Word can bring hope and, uh, and even healing. Let's pray to that end. Father, we recognize that for many, high expectations that go unmet at Christmas leave us uh, hurting and in pain, perhaps even depressed. I pray for our time today that it would be a deep encouragement as we look at the reality of the person of Jesus Christ, that you would touch us at a place in our soul that only you can move, that we might leave here having seen you, truly seen you, and be changed. Be with me, you know I'm a sinner, saved by your grace. Speak your word through your servant, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, we have been in the Gospel of John, and Peggy told me it might be, she left to help with the kids, but she said it might be a little bit confusing because we had Kevin Manis come in, who was a missionary in the Middle East, and he, he actually taught John 10, 1 through 21, and uh, that was because I needed to tell him what to teach probably two months out. And I was unsure how far I was going to get in the Gospel of John before he came. So I said, why don't you just do John 10? So in reality, I'm backfilling because we didn't get to the second part of John 9. So you're going to get the second part of John 9. And then I'm going to recognize Kevin taught 10, 1 through 21. And next week I'll pick up where he left off. So that's an explanation for why we are where we are. Um, But I'm excited about this text because I think that there are some incredible truths that come out of this text. And so let's start. And uh, in our text, Jesus is again kind of picking a fight with the Pharisees or the Jewish leaders. And he knows when he heals this blind man that he is healing him on the Sabbath, a day that they're not supposed to work, that any good Jew is not supposed to work. And Jesus does it on purpose. And so the Pharisees rise up and dispute this work. And look look with me in your Bibles at John 9.16. John 9.16, you can see this. It says... Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? In other words, I think he is God. How how do you make a man that was blind be able to see? And then there was a division among them, it says. And ultimately, if I tell you the rest of the story of the the blind beggar, we'll get to the end. I want you to know what the rest of the story is before we go into some other details. 
is this act of Jesus to heal this blind man on the Sabbath is going to lead to a split between the religious Pharisee Jew and others who are going to either say that Jesus is not God and blaspheme, because that's what that means, or they're going to worship him. So it's going to draw a line. They're going to say, oh, he's not God, or they're going to worship. So look at, look at John 9, 32 through 34. Now this is the blind man himself responding to the Pharisees. Look what he says. The blind man who's been healed, now he sees physically. He says, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a blind person or a, blind, a, a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So the blind man saying, if he wasn't from God, he wouldn't be able to do this. And they answered him. Listen how they answer. You were born in utter sin. You can hear their scorn. And would you teach us? Who are you? You're the guy that used to sit out at the gate, the blind beggar. You're going to teach us spiritual truth? And they cast him out. And what that means is they cast him out of the synagogue. In other words, as a Jew, he had rights to come into the synagogue and to worship. And now they've kicked him out and excommunicated him for his belief in Jesus. Their arrogance and their pride is blinding them to the reality that this man who was blind can see. And what you're seeing in our text is God is saying, who's really blind here? Who's truly the blind person? And it's interesting and it's humbling that it is the religious people that are blind. It is the Pharisees that are blind in the text. And the issue that is causing that is their arrogance and pride around the issue of morality. <clears throat> Jesus broke the Sabbath, and then they say, the blind man was born in utter sin. If you want to just cut to the chase, we were all born in utter sin. That's what the Scriptures teach, every single one of us. They have not considered morality at its most foundational level. And so what's going to happen in our text is Jesus is going to reveal to them that they don't understand morality. They're accusing him of blasphemy, saying, I'm God, when he's not. But in reality, he is, and he's going to reveal their immorality. Morality, you know, and this is what I really want you to hear because... We're in church, and a lot of the people that come to church probably need to hear about morality because morality often fosters a sense of pride. I'm doing good. I'm moral. But we don't see the fuller picture of what morality is. And so I'm going to have a word here about morality. The... Uh, 
first though, the Pharisees' unbelief in Jesus, their unbelief in Jesus is what will ultimately condemn, condemn them to eternal death. The Bible calls it hell. And it is God's wrath that comes down on sin that is not covered by the Savior that leads to people spending eternity separated from everything that is good, true, right, and beautiful, which is God himself. But what happens is, and I think this is the way most people think about it, if we just went out in society today, a lot of people would just say, I'm atheist, I don't even bother with that. I'm going to get to that in just a second. But, but most probably would say, you know, I'm actually a pretty good guy. I'm, I'm moral. You know, I told you about the guy that I met at the park who's dying with cancer. He's my age. And he told me, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I pick up my dog's droppings and don't leave them for people to step in. And, you know, if God's going to condemn me to go to hell for, for being a good guy, then I don't even want to know that guy, that God. That was the way he said it. There's really kind of three types of morality. And you may, be, you may be like this boy. There's a story about a boy who was asked what he thought God was like. He replied like this. As far as I could make out, God, must, God was the sort of person who was always snooping around to see if anyone was enjoying himself. And then he said, stop it. I kind of can relate to that. That may be the way I viewed God in my teens. You know, moral rules are the, the directions, and I steal this term from C.S. Lewis, moral rules are the directions for running the human machine. It's like a car. You know, it has, uh, some of us maybe were too young or never drove a stick shift, but, uh, but I, I grew up driving a stick shift in my first several cars, and I learned pretty quick that you, you must move those gears in sequence, one, two, three, four, how many gears they are. But early on, I would miss a gear because I was unskilled, and I might go from one to four. And when I did, you know what would happen, the car would just stutter and shut down. The human machine runs on morals much like we run cars on gears. When we are morally corrupt, the machine doesn't work. And so not only are God's morals uh, leading to a penalty of sin, which is death, that separates us from God, and that is the greatest problem, but also, being immoral makes the human machine break down. There are three types of ways that this happens. The first rule in morality is being kind to one another. And that's the one that most of us think about. When we raise our children, we tell them, now, don't be selfish. Quit bullying that child. Don't slap that child like that. That's not kind. And we make them share their toys. But most of us, that's kind of as we grow up, where our morality starts and where it stops. The second type of morality would be this, an internal morality. And this is kind of a, 
when things go wrong on the inside, the human machine will begin to not function well. And so our desires, our motives, our actions, our passions, when we get those messed up, the machine messes up. Let me illustrate it this way. There is a third rule, and I'm going to get to it. So rule one, being kind to one another. Rule two, internal morality. So another way to put that in the internal morality is this. Who are you when no one is looking? Because, let's say, for example, you are a man and you are taking extra looks at women that aren't your wife and you're married. Maybe it's online, maybe it's at the gym, wherever it is. Over time, eventually, I bet that's going to have an effect. Not just on you, but on others. Follow this illustration. Rule one, it's like this. You can think of it as a military fleet of ships. One captain decides, in, in the first rule, being kind to others, he decides to selfishly do his own thing and go his own way, and he steers his ship to the left. So you got a fleet of ships. He does that. He hits that other ship and causes many deaths. That would be breaking the morality rule of being kind to one another. The second one would be like, if that ship, and it's a fleet of ships again, but one ship doesn't have a rudder. So he's morally bankrupt and rudderless. He's going to run into everybody around him because he can't control his own ship. That would be a second type of morality. Here's the problem with that type of morality. When a person, man or woman, internally is immoral, the people that they run into is family. The people that they hurt are their closest friends and relatives. Your morality, even if you take God out of the picture and you're just an atheist, morality helps. Morality matters. But the, the bigger issue is the third rule. So the first rule I said is we're unkind to other people. The second rule is internally we're immoral. And um, the, uh, the Lord Jesus, look with me at, Matt, I don't have this in my notes, so I've got to look it up too. Matthew 23, 28, as it relates to the second rule. Matthew 23, 28. This is what it says. Well, I'm going to start in 27. Jesus is again talking to the Pharisees. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So do you see what Jesus is saying? You can have it all together on the outside, come to church, everybody says, 
oh yeah, they're really nice people. I think they're great. But inside, you're a mess. You're a whitewashed tomb. There's all kinds of evil and sin going on. So that's the second type. The third type. <clears throat> this, one, this one's interesting, a little hard on, uh, uh, to explain it. But this one is at the root of what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. This type of morality hasn't even entered the screen for them. And it's the goal or the destiny, the destination of their lives. Who really are you? Whose are you is really the question. Whose are you? If a particular, I'm going to hopefully make this clear, if a particular captain decides of one of these ships, the fleet is going, he decides, I'm going to Europe, not Japan. He could compromise the entire mission. He has placed himself out from under the authority of the military, and he's striking out independently on his own. Never mind, it is not his ship. It is not his decision to make. The military, in effect, owns him and his ship. He is rebelling against the authority. This third sense of morality is often completely neglected in our culture. And it is disregarded as it relates to Christianity. Here's what the third sense of morality is. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. 1 Corinthians 6.20 You were created. You're not the creator. You're breathing God's air. Not your own. You're operating in His world. And so, perhaps the greatest immorality is to rebel against your Creator. And that is exactly what the Pharisees are doing. And that is exactly why Jesus did what He did. His whole point is to bring their sin and to bring their blindness to the surface and say, I'm your creator, I'm your God, and you're rebelling against me. Matter of fact, so much so, in just a few chapters, you're going to spit on me, you're going to beat me, you're going to lock me up, and then you're going to kill me. So for us... To live selfishly and not ask with our lives, God, what would you have for me? What is it that I am supposed to do to make much of you and to treasure you and to go about our daily lives as if he doesn't even exist is moral rebellion. So our story today reveals the faith of the man born blind and his courage to speak for Christ as well as worship and treasure him. 
And Jesus uses the morality issue to reveal the blindness of the Pharisees. But then I have this other question when I'm reading the text. And I hope I can bring you in on it. Here's my question. It says that Jesus made mud out of basically spittle, if you want to use the King James Version, but spit. He, t- he, he turns dirt into mud and he puts it on this guy's eyes, right? Here's my question. Why did Jesus make mud and put it on that guy's eyes? I don't, why? He is God. All he had to do was say, see. And that guy would have went, bink, yep, I see it all. That's amazing. What's the point of the mud? You know, it's good. you get down here and you get a little, you do this and you wipe it in his eyes. It's like, you didn't have to do all that. You're God. You could have just said, see. There may be more than one explanation, but I'm going to give you two that I think hit at the, at the core of it. Jesus knew the Pharisees and he knew their laws. And there was a law against kneading something like taking dough and kneading it out. And uh, this law that the Pharisees had created, they were saying that's working on the Sabbath. And the word for mud or clay here is the same word used for dough. Jesus had broken the law against kneading dough or clay or mud. So if he would have just said, see, he wouldn't have ticked off the Pharisees quite the way he did when he made mud. The making of the mud is what picked the fight. And Jesus was going to pick the fight because what was at stake, and it says it earlier in the chapter, is that they would see the works of God. And not only would they see the works of God, but what made them even matter is he was referring to himself because he's the one that did it. He's the one that made the mud to put it on the eyes and made the guy see. And so they're like, not only are you working on the Sabbath, but you're blaspheming because you said this was done that we would see the works of God. You're the only one that's done any works here, so you're saying you're God. Of course, Jesus is like, yeah, duh. That's exactly what I'm saying. So that's one explanation. The second explanation I think I like even better, and this is God usually uses an instrument or a means to accomplish his work. Think about it. You're God. You can do whatever you want to do. Oceans, go here, stop. Planets, go there, stop. Sun, do this. Just keep doing that. You're God. But if you think about it, in the Old Testament it says, the horse is made ready for the day of battle. 
but the victory belongs to the Lord. God is decisive in victory. The victory belongs to the Lord, not the horse. But yet he uses the horse. Why does he use the horse? If he can do it. I think it's twofold. God's world is good. And two, God uses means to accomplish his purposes. And here's where it gets even more important. God doesn't just use horses. He uses people. And that's significant. Think about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not the writer of the Gospel of John. John the Baptist was the one that came, and he was the forerunner to get everybody ready for Jesus to come. And John the Baptist had this miraculous uh, experience inside the womb where you could argue he actually received the Holy Spirit while he was just inside the womb. He was, as Jesus said later, the greatest of all. But if you look at Luke 7, you don't have to turn there, but follow me in this story. There's a, there's a time when John is arrested and he's put in prison. And in prison, he begins to doubt. And he even begins to doubt if Jesus is God. This is John the Baptist. Now, remember... John the Baptist before this was out in the Jordan and Jesus comes up and he says to everybody there, behold, the Lamb of God. And then when Jesus comes down, he says, man, I don't need to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. He says, no, this is the Father's will. And then he hears the voice from heaven saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then John witnesses this dove come down from heaven magically, supernaturally, and land on his shoulder. John has seen all of that, but now he's sitting in prison, and this is what's going through his head. What if I was wrong? There have been many false prophets, prophets in Israel. What makes me so sure that he wasn't, he was the real thing? What if I've led thousands astray? There had been other false messiahs. What if Jesus is just another? And the doubt's rolling over him. And he says, so far, he's saying this to himself, Jesus' ministry hasn't been exactly what I would have imagined. Could this imprisonment, my imprisonment, really be God's judgment? On me because I missed it? It felt as if God had left him and the devil had himself taken up his place. He tried to recall the prophecies and signs that seemed so clear to him before, but it was difficult to think straight. Comfort just wouldn't stick to his soul. Doubts buzzed around his brain like flies around his face in this prison. The thought of being, and this is what really got him, the thought of being executed for the sake of righteousness and justice, he could bear that. But he could not bear the thought that he might have been wrong about Jesus. 
His one task was to prepare the way for the Lord. If he had gotten it that wrong, his ministry and his life was in vain. You ever have doubts? John had doubts. But even with his doubts, there remained in him a deep, unshakable trust in Jesus. Jesus would tell him the truth. He just needed to hear from him again. So John does what? He sends two of his disciples to inquire of Jesus. Jesus is patient with those two men. Matter of fact, he has them stay there. And he does all of these miracles. And then he tells those two guys, go back to John and tell him the blind see, the deaf hear, the crippled are walking, the dead are being raised. And when John hears it, his faith is bolstered and he's confident again, no, this is the Messiah. Did you see what just happened there? God, Jesus, could have, from a distance, said, John, don't fear, believe. I am really him. He didn't do it that way. He used people. He used those two disciples. He used the mud. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? Because we know, and this is where it gets really interesting, Matthew 16, 17, when Jesus asked Peter, he says, who do you say I am, Peter? Peter says, you're God. You're the real thing. And he says, blessed are you, Peter, because only the Father in heaven can reveal that to you. Now do you see my dilemma? It feels as though those two disciples revealed it to John, and he got insight from people, not God. So what do you do with that? How do you make sense of that? It feels like it wasn't God. It was these two men that helped encourage him. Huh. So why does Jesus use mud? Why does Jesus use people to tell John the Baptist what they've seen so that he can have assurance again? This is what I think it is. And this is going to blow your socks off. I'm sure of it. It's so profound. You're going to say, Clint, you're astonishing. <laughs> but I believe this is the gospel truth. And here it is. It's this simple. God does it. He uses people. God does it. He uses people. So in evangelism, telling others about Christ, God does it. Nobody, nobody, nobody comes to the Lord if God doesn't do something in their life. If God doesn't reveal himself, they don't come. But he uses people. 
And we also have a decision to make. It's real. Both things. God has to do it. People have to say, Lord, I surrender. Both truths are real. What about when you go and visit somebody and encourage someone who's sick and they truly are encouraged in their soul after that visit? How did that happen? God does it. He uses people. What about in the medical field when a surgeon removes a tumor and the person is healed from their cancer or whatever? God does it. He uses people. You get a strep throat. The doctor gives you penicillin. Your throat gets better. God does it. At the cellular level, the molecular level, a full understanding of how penicillin works is not there. God does it. He uses people. God is bringing us, me and you, into some of the most amazing realities in the universe. He will allow you to work with him that you might know him. So when I was a boy, I've told the story at least once, but I'll tell it again. My father asked me to go with him, and he, as y'all know, worked for Better Brands, which is a distributor of Miller Beer, and he was going to drive a truck and park it and leave it. And I was going to follow him in the van. And so we did that. And he parked the truck. But when he parked the truck, I was just 16 and I was just learning how to drive. And I tried to make a turn. And when I made the turn, the truck was here and it was a tight alley. I leaned that van up against the truck. My dad had a perfect driving record for like 25 years and I just laid into that truck. So now I've not just wrecked one vehicle for the company, I've wrecked two. And in my panic and in feeling so horrible and seeing my father's face turn blood red, I decided I'll get off of this truck real quick. And y'all know what that meant. I just drug all the way down the side. So I didn't just mess up the quarter panel, I messed up the whole panel, the whole side of the vehicle. And he got out of his truck, and I could tell he was scorching mad. And I was thinking, this is it. This is how I leave this world. And by the time I got over there to him, he had calmed down. And my father grabbed me, and he kissed me on the top of the head, and he said, son, it's not your fault. Don't worry about it. I was just relieved, you know. So when we talk about God and we talk about morals and we talk about being good, all of these things, what I'm trying to say by sharing that story about my father is if you've ever had a good father, if you've ever had a loving father, if you've ever had a gracious father, to be with that father is one of the greatest joys and blessings in life. That's the heavenly father times infinity.
It's not about rules. It's not about getting this right and not doing this and doing that and doing this. It's about a relationship with the Heavenly Father. And He's so much more gracious than my Father. He's so much better than my Father. He's so much more beautiful and good and right and wise and true and holy and just and everything that is right in the world, this is that Father. But the problem is we can't see him. And so to close, briefly, I'm going to show you four conversations in this text that show the blind man beginning to see. And I pray the same could be true for you. Look, the first very, I mean, these are quick. The first conversation is the blind man and his neighbors in John 9, 8 through 12. They're like, I don't know if that's that guy that used to be out at the gate begging the blind guy or not. That's what they're saying. But then the blind beggar, he insists to his neighbors Yes, I'm that guy. I was the blind beggar. I know I look different now because I can see. I combed my hair. I realized what a mess it was. But I'm that guy. So he's telling them that. But then he says, he calls Jesus at this point, the man. He refers to Jesus as the man. That's not very personal. That doesn't come across like he knows him, right? But what I want to show you is a progression of sight in this thing, in this dialogue, till you get all the way to where he worships. Look at the second conversation. is in John 9, 13 through 17. In, in verse 17, the blind man and the Pharisees here, it says in verse 17, So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. Now, for me and you, that may not mean a whole lot. But to call somebody a prophet during biblical times was to give them props. That's real respect. A prophet is a a man of honor. So he goes from the man did this to the prophet. That's interesting. Now, the fourth, I mean, excuse me, the third conversation is John 9 and it's around verse 33, 34. It's the, the beggar, the blind man with the Pharisees. And this is stunning. It is stunning because how brave now this blind beggar has become. Because remember, he's in the face of worldly authority. These guys are educated way beyond him. And they have authority way beyond him. And this is what happens. They're basically saying, he's not Jesus, he's not God, or that man is not God. And this is what we know he says. We all know the the story here. He says, guys, (laughs) I mean, if you put it in the modern day vernacular, it's like, dude, all I know is I was blind and I'm seeing. Who else can do that? I know that. I don't know for sure about all these other accusations you're making, but I know this. I was blind for a long time, and I can see you. 
So what does that say? And then he's starting to get the truth about Jesus even deeper in this conversation. He's seeing more. In verse 27, he says to them, why do you want to hear my story again? And this is where it goes from, it it turns into scorn. He says, do you also want to become his disciple? Could you imagine if they heard? It's like, whoa, you better back up, buddy. But his confidence is growing in who he believes Jesus to be as he's thinking more about, I really was blind for a long time. That guy put some mud on my eyes, told me to go down there and wash it off, and I can see. And then we come to the fourth conversation. Jesus comes to him, and this is when it just turns to to beauty. Verse 35 through 38. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, meaning they'd cast him out of the synagogue. And Jesus goes and finds him. And he says to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, I believe. And he worshiped him. And he worshiped him. And he worshiped him. I think that if you see, and that's the issue, if you see Jesus, if you really see him, if God opens your eyes, you will worship him. It won't just be, I'm scared to go to hell because of my sin. I'm scared of the wrath of God. So if I got to say Jesus is Jesus so I can go to heaven, I'll say it. But I really am just about heaven. I want the ticket. I want to be able to put it in my back pocket and know when I get ready to die, I got my ticket and I'm going to heaven. I'm good to go. I will say this. If you're not seeing and treasuring and worshiping Jesus, you don't know him. There's no way you can know this God and not worship him. It's impossible. And so, the Pharisees hear all of this, and they hate him even more. The blind beggar worships. Who's really blind? Here's the questions for application. Will you worship him? Or maybe another way is, do you worship him? And I'm I'm not just saying Sunday morning when we come here. This is good. Nothing wrong with this. But when you're alone, when you have a moment to yourself, in the morning maybe, in the evening, in the afternoon, do you ever open your Bible, read some passages, and just pray and say, thank you, Lord. The greatest issues in my life have been solved. And not only that, but I get to work with you, like going to work with my father. What I learned that day 
was my father was gracious. My father was loving. My father was forgiving. So we say, why did he put mud on his eyes? Why does he use people? I think it's all about relationship. As we work with him, we see the glory and the beauty that is who he is. So he leaves us here. Because here's the other thing. God could do it this way. All right, everybody's going to heaven. Boom, we're up there. It's over. No. We become Christians. Some of us, he leaves here like Bob for 140 years. (laughs) Because he has a purpose. He has things for him to do. He says, I've prepared works for you to do to walk in them. So that Bob gets a chance to not just know God intellectually, but know God experientially. I think that's what that's about. So, two more questions and we're done. Are you allowing God to use your life? Where do you step out in faith like this blind beggar and say, (laughs) in some sense, I don't know, guys. I know this. I was blind and now I see. My testimony I mean, that is such a, such a powerful thing. It's a simple testimony. When I was 20 years old, I was blind to all of this. I had no idea all this was going on. And God did something, and the lights came on, and now I see. But I will say this. The other side of the coin is I had to say in my heart yes to God, and I had to surrender my life. I couldn't be the ship that was going to decide to go to Europe when the whole fleet was going to Japan. God had a purpose for my life. He has a purpose for your lives. You must surrender to his purposes. Sometimes, matter of fact, in this life, often those things will be hard. You'll find yourself surrendering to things you wished you never had to surrender to. But what will happen is he'll show up and he'll walk with you through those things and you'll know him. And you'll look back and you'll say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't change it. The way I know him now couldn't have happened Without the surrender. And then I want to say a word just finally. Lots of you, I watched my grandmother face loneliness. She was probably the loneliest person I know. And I think as we age, that is an issue. And I don't think it's a fun one. I think it's a really hard one. And I've never had to experience it like some of you are now. Some of you have a Ph.D., in loneliness, and I grieve over that. I'm sad for you because of that. What I want to encourage you to do is do what John did. John sent two disciples, and he went and asked for help. What I think the local church is is a chance to connect. We need each other. You don't need to be at home alone. Day in, day out, day in, day out, week in, week out. 
We need each other. We need the encouragement. If you doubt in your loneliness or even, you know, depression at some point, take courage. John doubted. And when, when he sent the disciples back to John to encourage him, you know what Jesus did the very next thing? He turned to the people And in the middle of John's doubting, he said, that's the greatest man ever, John. Take courage if you doubt. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. That even today, because you healed a blind man, we can see the works of God. Thank you for that reality. Pray that you open our eyes to the truth that is Jesus Christ. I pray in Jesus' name.